on this season, we'll be exploring our bizarre beliefs, unfounded fears, and fantastical thinking, how they shape our psychology and culture, and how much of our past we can find in the present. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. The two killers belong to a group of students that named itself the Trenchcoat Mafia. Experts call them super predators. Kids that once stole hubcaps, now rape and murder. By the year 2005, we may very well have a bloodbath of teenage violence. I thought that this episode, like all of them really, was going to be pretty straightforward, something I know you've heard me say before. I thought I'd explore the fears of various countercultures that lit up headlines over the years, the greasers and the hippies, the punks and the metalheads, and finally bring it all around to our newest, biggest teenage villains. I thought I'd do a simple debunking of school shooting myths around violent video games, mental illness, and bullying, and then make a call for the better gun control that I've long hoped for. But the more I read, the more I found that there was a side to all of this that wasn't being discussed, one that was having a much more devastating impact on our youth than the mass shootings we've come to know so intimately through the media. I decided enough people were tackling all the myriad of myths I just mentioned, so I wanted to do something different. Even though this is an emotionally charged topic, I need you to follow me down a different path to a different part of this conversation, One we're not having enough. Running alongside the panics in the 80s and 90s about murderous teenage metalheads that we covered in our season one series on satanic panic were other kinds of panics too, emerging out of Reagan's wars on drugs and crime as the Central Park Five stood trial for the rape and beating of a white jogger. Reagan's fictitious crack babies were growing toward their own teendom, painted as wilding super predators committing random and senseless violence in groups of 30 or more, forming a tidal wave of violent criminals predicted to eventually be in the hundreds of thousands. At the very end of the satanic panic, the first highly publicized school shooting ushered in a new archetype of the dangerous teen, the trench-coated goths sitting angry and dejected on the outskirts of each school lunchroom, hypnotized by the gore of video games, the fog of mental illness, the revenge of a bullied soul, or even the guns that they were too easily able to access. Just to get this out of the way early, despite how these last few years have made it seem, despite how these last few years have felt, schools are still statistically the safest place our kids and teenagers can be, by far, and our youth are still far more likely to be struck by lightning twice than to be killed by a school shooter. It doesn't make these extremely rare tragedies any less tragic or any less worth of conversation on how to stop them from happening. But more and more, our public schools are referred to as actual war zones by Democrats and Republicans alike. The news is saturated with these images of police storming schools, of bleary-eyed kids with strange manifestos, of parents crying and stunned, dizzy with grief, not even able to process what happened before our cameras put in their face. We use these moments as metaphors, as symbols for our political aims, which isn't always a bad thing. That is, when results that come from it are helpful, rather than even more harmful than that which we seek to address. In the case of our collective reaction to school mass shootings, 
Unfortunately, the latter is true. No matter who we are, no matter how well-meaning, when we are burning in our collective rage, in our collective fear, we sometimes miss important things. And sometimes important people can use these moments to pass laws that we don't even notice. It's vital that we take a look at the results of our emotionally driven social movements. Are they what we hoped for? When we fear the extremely rare mass violence of suburban American teenagers, who are the invisible victims of our collective outrage? There's a tidal wave of juvenile violent crime right over the horizon. And some who study it say the worst is yet to come. Since the emergence of the concept of the teenager in the 1920s, something we talked about more extensively in our episode on teenage sex, the media has been obsessed with the immorality and danger that these popular subcultures apparently produce. These so-called youth quakes really began when young women cut their hair short and started wearing short dresses, when newspapers and politicians were aghast at white teens in jazz clubs, mingling in new urban centers, smoking marijuana with young black musicians, getting more than a little too close, their parents believed. Eventually came the hippies, the first serious anti-war generation that terrified parents who came of age in the conformity-obsessed 1950s with all their drug use and sex, with their general deviance, with their peaceful rebellion against ingrained norms of racial separation, sobriety, and Christian purity. This group that was actively working against the war violence and racism that much of their parents' generation embraced were turned into blood-hungry beasts when the story of Charles Manson and his apparent cult of teenage hippies exploded in the news and slowly the evil hippie became an archetype. As a direct response of the growing fundamentalist movement that was coming to power as a reaction to the permissive 1970s with the movements in favor of women's rights, abortion, black rights, and gay rights, as well as the aftershock of the Manson murders and the growing cultural interest in Anton LaVey's tongue-in-cheek Church of Satan, the Christian right began demonizing teenagers who dared to veer from their fundamentalist doctrines. Narratives ramped up hot in the 1980s about teenage Satanism that led to senseless murder in the name of their anti-God. Running concurrent to these panics about teenage satanic murderers were panics about gangs of roving black teenagers who attacked innocent white people just for fun. Both of these categories contained teenage deviants, either deviant for being anti-Christian or deviant for being black. But as we'll see, there are huge differences in how these panics affected the communities that were said to be dangerous. Capping off the 90s fear of Satanism was one of the most seminal events that would lead to a new narrative of the dangerous teenager, one that still fills our news feeds today. Let's start with this event that most of us probably remember, one that would go on to change everything we believe about the potential for teenage violence, about the safety of suburbia sparkling outside the inner city, a mecca for the innocence of children, destroyed for good by two vicious young men. Amid the gunshots and bomb blasts, hundreds of students ran for their lives, stalked in their own school by two of their own classmates who went on a rampage. Witnesses say they laughed as they fired their weapons, executing their classmates who begged for their lives. It's the spring of 1999. Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold walk casually onto the campus of Columbine High School in a quiet Denver suburb, carrying large duffel bags. 
The bags contain homemade bombs that the boys had built to blow up the cafeteria to kill hundreds of students. They also leave two bombs inside their cars in the parking lot, planning to detonate them to kill anyone fleeing from the school, as well as first responders. None of these bombs successfully detonate, so they revert to Plan B. Pulling two 9mm pistols and two 12-gauge shotguns from their bags, dressed in long black trench coats, they walk the halls of Columbine, cornering a group of their peers in the stacks of the library, shooting and killing 12 students and one teacher before committing suicide themselves. In the two-decade-long vein of satanic ritual sensationalism, the Denver Post immediately and hastily reported, quote, By several accounts, the group was interested in the occult, mutilation, and shock rocker Marilyn Manson and Adolf Hitler. The weird part is that none of this is true, except for the part about Hitler. The Washington Post, however, had this to say. The shooters who turned Columbine High School into an unspeakable landscape of carnage yesterday were members of a small clique of outcasts who wore black trench coats and spent their entire adolescence deep inside the morose subculture of gothic fantasy, their fellow students said. Suddenly, the archetype of the teen Satanist transitioned into a more mild and less obvious threat, the goth. Like the metalheads of the 1980s, the goth cliques of the 1990s liked to portray a dark and often witchy satanic vibe, embracing the fashion of a cartoonish kind of underworld. But these nightmare-before-Christmas-obsessed sad kids were not dangerous, and the Columbine shooters actually had nothing to do with the group that came to be known as the Trenchcoat Mafia. They were just a group of innocent sulkers that didn't really know the killers at all. But because Harris and Klebold happened to don those black trench coats, goths for a time became the number one fear in America, and Marilyn Manson became, of course, their hypnotic satanic leader. In reality, Harris and Klebold were pretty much straight-up white supremacists who revered the Oklahoma bomber Timothy McVeigh, and according to their journals, his attack was the inspiration for Columbine, originally planned for the same date, April 19th, instead of April 20th. When they found a large group of boys hiding under a lunch table, they pulled out Isaiah Scholes, calling him the very worst of anti-black slurs, and then shooting under the table, with Klebold reportedly saying, and I'm sorry, but this feels important, quote, I didn't know black brains could fly that far. This narrative was barely touched on by the media and never explored in a mainstream context. However, the goth story has stuck, even now. So has the story of their outcasted social position, even though they were not chronically bullied any more than other students and were actually relatively popular. In fact, they were often referred to as bullies themselves by students who were interviewed. And yet, despite our characterization of these white boys as evil, they too were cast as victims of corrupting influences, not wholly responsible for their own actions, but rather the product of their ever-darkening surroundings, of the moral failings of a new America. Other teens, however, were not afforded the same privilege. Now we just got a call of a disorderly group, about 30 to 40 male inside Central Park, tackling disorderly and harassing On April 19, 1989, exactly 10 years before the Columbine Massacre, a 28-year-old jogger named Trisha Maley was brutally assaulted and raped in New York's Central Park. 
The assault was so sudden and violent that Trisha could not remember her attacker or attackers. Soon, the police and the news began reporting that a group of 30 black and Latino boys between the ages of 14 and 16 were participating in something called wilding, with the New York Post calling them, quote, packs of bloodthirsty teens from the tenements, bursting with boredom and rage, roaming the streets, getting kicks from an evening of ultraviolence. They were also called savage. They were called the wolf pack. They were called animals and feral. There were indeed teenagers committing crimes in the park that night, including throwing rocks at cars and even beating up a homeless man. But as DNA would later confirm, they did not sexually assault Trisha that night. At that time, New York businessman Donald Trump claimed that his city was being, quote, ruled by the law of the streets as roving bands of wild criminals roam our neighborhoods, dispensing their own vicious brand of twisted hatred on whomever they encounter. Trump took out a full-page ad in four New York City newspapers with the headline in all caps saying, Bring back the death penalty. Bring back our police. The boys confessed to the murder after hours of interrogation without a parent or lawyer present for somewhere between 14 and 30 hours. They later told the media that they were bullied into confessing, but nonetheless, they were convicted and sentenced to 5 to 15 years, either in a juvenile detention center or in prison, depending on their age, despite the fact that the DNA found at the scene matched none of those convicted. It wasn't until 2001 that the Central Park Five would finally be exonerated when a serial rapist came forward in prison to confess to the crime. His DNA matched. Tom Brokaw described the pastime of wilding as, quote, rampaging in wolf packs and attacking people just for the fun of it. New York Post columnist Pete Hamill stated, quote, They were coming downtown from a world of crack, welfare, guns, knives, indifference, and ignorance, and driven by a collective fury, brimming with the rippling energies of youth. They only had one goal, to smash, hurt, rob, stomp, rape. Unsurprisingly, wilding was not a trend, as the media police and politicians claimed. That night in Central Park was a single story that was then used to characterize black youth as a faceless, violent mob. Columnist Pat Buchanan wrote, quote, If the eldest of that wolf pack were tried, convicted, and hanged in Central Park by June 1st, and the 13- and 14-year-olds were stripped, horsewhipped, and sent to prison, that park might soon be safe again for women. This statement is so steeped in antebellum racism as to be almost cartoonish in its offense. Despite the eventual exonerations of Antron McRae, Kevin Richardson, Youssef Salam, Raymond Santana, and Corey Wise, the damage had already been done. The narrative of black and brown teen riots hunting white women and anyone else in their terrible path continued to brim in the news. After the story had sunk into America's consciousness, the early 90s brought reports about something called the knockout game. The urban legend of Wilding had morphed into a new story, a black game of punching people in the back of the head for fun, especially old white women, and then running away. The concept was popularized by a man named Paul Lane, who was attacked in what was later proven to be a robbery, not, as he claimed, a racist attack on an innocent white man. Lane wrote of the incident, quote, 
I'm a liberal Obama supporter, but that didn't stop the violence on me. I have serious concussion issues, and my trust for young African-American men in particular is now less than zero. He continued, To say the black assaults on non-blacks isn't racist is a blatant lie. Black predators are racist to the bone. Most all live the part in prison. I assume that Mr. Lane would not have made these sweeping statements about young white men. The knockout game was everywhere. The Today Show, for instance, reported in 2013 that, quote, teenagers are knocking people out for the fun of it, targeting women and children with cases piling up. But none of the incidents cited by the news were actually part of a game. They were often robberies or personal attacks, run-of-the-mill crimes taken out of context, with videos clipped to support the desired frightening narrative. Much of the apparent footage was stock videos of crimes that appeared to be random violence but weren't. A sociologist named Mike King searched extensively to find one legitimate case of the game, but was unable to find a single instance. And yet, these same stories have lasted up to the present decade. We talked about the now-debunked concept of crack babies in our season one episode called Drugs, black children born to people who used crack cocaine in the 1980s, and the fears they would grow into wildly violent adolescents. In the 1990s, these imaginary crack babies were slowly growing toward their teenage years, and the term super predator rose to common use when First Lady Hillary Clinton spoke at a rally in 1996 to the very white state of New Hampshire. We need to take these people on. They are often connected to big drug cartels. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heel. And the president has asked the FBI to launch a very concerted effort against gangs everywhere. In case it's not clear, Clinton means heal, the way you would command a dog to subservience, not heal, as in to make healthy again. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. 
The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. And now, back to the show. This term, super predator, was created when conservative political scientist John DeLillo cobbled together a theory of black teenage violence to come, predicting that by 2010 there would be a huge increase in super predators, 270,000 of them in fact. He called them, quote, radically impulsive, brutally remorseless, elementary school youngsters who pack guns instead of lunches and, quote, have absolutely no respect for human life. To DeLillo, there was no cure for this monstrous personality, except, of course, excluding them from schools and then incarcerating them for as long as possible. That's what he said. That was his plan. At the same time, the Clinton administration signed off on the three strikes law that would contribute to mass incarceration at the fastest rate the nation had ever seen. And states all over passed laws to try teenagers as young as 13 or 14 as adults, even though youth crime was at historically low levels. His Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act also drastically increased federal funding for school police, known as school resource officers or SROs. In addition, the Zero Tolerance Policy, which first started as the Gun-Free Schools Act, would soon apply extremely harsh penalties for offenses like the possession of drugs, alcohol, or tobacco, fighting, dress code violations, truancy, tardiness, and disrupting class. Very broad infractions that could be interpreted at the will of teachers and SROs. Along with the new funding came more surveillance equipment like metal detectors and cameras. The zero-tolerance laws allowed for a kind of free-for-all in what's considered teenage criminal behavior, with faculty and SROs suspending and arresting kids as young as five for things like using a cell phone in class or talking back to a teacher. Unsurprisingly, a 2011 study found that the presence of SROs increased arrests in public schools, especially for minor offenses that in the past would have been handled by those in the administration. Inside the walls of public schools, there became a different kind of justice system, where the legal rights of students were severely limited, with SROs allowed at any time to search students and their property without a warrant and even without reasonable probable cause, even with the ability to issue random drug tests. But never fear, Safford United School District No. 1 v. Redding did place some restrictions on schools by determining that strip searches were too intrusive for students. There's always been a relationship between race and school resource officers. They were first placed in schools during integration, during the Jim Crow era of the 1960s. In 1967, the Orangeburg Massacre saw police fire on students at a North Carolina campus who were protesting the segregation of a local bowling alley. Three black teenagers were killed and more than 30 were injured. That same year, 3,500 Philadelphia public high school students walked out of class to march to the Board of Education building to make demands such as more black teachers and black history courses. 
100 riot gear clad police officers beat hundreds of students and 22 people were seriously injured with 57 students arrested. Instead of these incidents shining a light on policing and racism, laws were passed to ramp up the control over these dangerous teens. Legislation was proposed to prohibit obnoxious behavior in public schools in order to, quote, keep outside agitators off campus, the bill's sponsor said. You would think that since the 1990s, as our attention has shifted to the deranged violence of the white social outcast, we would see a rise in the arrests of white male youth. And yet, this is not the case. Instead, the rate at which black students entering the criminal justice system has actually risen. In 2001, black kids were 4.1 times more likely to enter the criminal justice system than white kids, but by 2015, they were five times more likely, despite the fact that data has consistently shown that black and white youth commit crimes at the same rate. In urban areas, 57% of schools employ at least one SRO, compared to 45% in suburban districts. In 2015, the Department of Justice found that 44% of incarcerated youth were black, despite the fact that they only make up 14% of the population. And it's not only kids of color that are disproportionately affected. A 2011 study done by the ACLU found that students with disabilities are four times more likely to be suspended than those without disabilities. In one example from 2015, an 11-year-old boy with autism spectrum disorder in Virginia kicked a trash can and was subsequently slammed to the ground by an SRO, handcuffed and charged with felony assault on a police officer. Students who fall under the LGBT category also face higher levels of suspension and arrest. Another recent incident that gained media attention that you might remember happened in South Carolina when an SRO at Spring Valley High School slammed a black girl over her desk by the throat and then dragged her across the floor because she would not stand up to be arrested for using her cell phone in class. Despite the fact that there was video evidence, both the injured student and the girl who filmed the attack were charged with crimes, while the school resource officer was not. We must all do more to recognize and look for the early warning signals that deeply troubled young people send often before they explode into violence. Surely more of them can be saved and more innocent victims and tragedies can be avoided. The chance of a K-12 student in the U.S. being killed by a school shooter is roughly 1 in 614 million. That's a chance of 0.000001%. Teenagers are far, far more likely to die in car accidents, far more likely even to die in plane crashes, to die by bee stings, to die in a fireworks accident, to die by lightning. Despite how it feels, and I understand why it feels that way, our kids are not in imminent and constant danger when they are at school. In fact, it is statistically the very safest place a teenager can be, much, much safer than even their own homes. And yet these car crashes and bee stings do not usually come with a face, nor do they come with a story. Today, on both the left and right, we desperately seek to explain the actions of white school shooters, prodding for exactly what made him do it, what imparted the violence to him. 
He was a victim too, we say, a victim of bullying, a victim of mental illness, of the cruel assault of video games handed down by heartless entertainment corporations, even a victim of the ease at which Americans can get guns. We want to address whatever it is that made him do it, whatever hypnotic force that took, first, his own innocence away. But this same courtesy, this search for an explanation, was not extended to black youth when Hillary Clinton said, we can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. Or as Trump once said, bring back the death penalty, bring back our police. We ask, what did Trayvon Martin do from inside his hood that led to his own death? We argue to this day about what teenager Michael Brown did someone who was painted almost like our modern super predator. What actions did he take? And was it enough to justify what happened next? Unlike the satanic metalheads before them, as well as the gothic Columbine shooters, the behaviors of these 90s era wilding black teens were not widely blamed on the new genre of violent hip hop. Neither Tupac nor the NWA became their hypnotic Marilyn Mansons. When I think of the rumors of super predators, of wilding in the knockout game, the nation didn't seem at all interested in figuring out what made these kids violent. Mental illness was never brought up, bullying was never brought up, as well as their access to weapons. They just weren't discussed, and neither was the very real issue of the increasing poverty rate created by the Reagan administration's economic policies and his racist war on drugs. The only thing that was blamed for these sociopathic super predators, if anything, were their crack-addicted single parents and their absent fathers. This was common and expected violence. This was an inherent condition, the nature of the inner city itself, and the nature of those who grew up inside of it. With all this continued sacrifice in the name of school safety, you would hope that there would be positive results. There aren't. Though studies do disagree on whether the presence of SROs actually leads to a decrease in crime, the majority have found that it doesn't, though it is difficult to establish whether these results are causal or not. But on the topic of school shootings, of 68 schools that experienced them, almost none of them were helped by the presence of their SROs. And in four out of the five most devastating school shootings in American history, all had an SRO present, but none of them were able to stop the shooter. In the case of Columbine, most all of what we have left in our collective memories is the narrative that America wanted to keep, and it's completely incorrect. They weren't social outcasts. They weren't goths or their satanic predecessors. They weren't exceptionally bullied, and they weren't obsessed with Marilyn Manson. They weren't victims of these corrupting forces. They weren't victims of the violence of the Doom video game. But they were bald-faced racists who wanted to follow in the footsteps of their hero, Timothy McVeigh, a story we've never really heard. And I'm not saying that Columbine was wholly inspired by some kind of racist agenda, but there's evidence that at least a part of it was influenced by that type of thinking. 
I don't know what made the Columbine shooters. I don't know what makes anyone a school shooter. And I think none of us really do. But I can't help but notice the way we continuously sanitize parts of the history of Columbine. For example, how these boys were able to utter a sentence about black brains without it ever being talked about in the press. And yet, to this day, we believe they were part of the trench coat mafia. But none of the trench coat mafia were arrested for their taste in clothing, of which the same cannot be said for the black teenagers actually arrested for wearing their hair naturally, for sagging their pants, for talking back. With all our talk of war zones and constant danger, it's not those who look like Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, those who look like Nicholas Cruz, those who look like Adam Lanza that suffer. I, too, want comprehensive gun control. It's the fastest way to address the issue of school shootings. But when we don't keep in mind how rare these school shootings actually are, in the midst of our collective outrage over any number of causes, any number of reasons, we forget about the invisible victims that are made. Studies have consistently shown that suspending and incarcerating youth affects every aspect of their future, from whether they will graduate to whether they'll be able to attend college, find a job, and even find stable housing. Even a single arrest can double the chances that a student will drop out of high school, and if they appear in court, that number quadruples. This is known to sociologists and activists as the school-to-prison pipeline, and the fear and subsequent criminalization of our teenagers damages the prosperity of our future generation, especially those who've already been disenfranchised enough. And not only that, but if we must talk about government spending in this issue, detaining just one youth offender comes at an average of almost $150,000 a year. As research around school violence continues to prove, it isn't policing that keeps teenagers in line. It's actually a strong sense of a caring community. The increasing of security measures have not made students safer. In fact, a New York chief judge named Judith Kay and her assigned task force actually found that students reported feeling safer in districts that approached discipline with counseling and mentorship and without a police presence. However, their parents felt a stronger sense of safety in districts where a police officer was stationed in each school. But more and more programs such as social and emotional learning and positive behavioral interventions and supports are attempting to engender trust and care within school communities, between authority figures and the children and teenagers they serve. It seems that both sides of this debate, whatever they blame for the actions of school shooters, believe that we need to stop these events before they happen. And of course we do. But doing so with school resource officers simply doesn't work, and it's a waste of precious resources that could be used in more comprehensive counseling and mentorship programs on professionals that can better understand early problematic behavior and address it in a healthy way. Tactics that have not only been shown to perform better statistically, but also help school communities feel safer as a whole without criminalizing those who disrupt whatever officials decide in the moment that means. In the most recent election cycle, Hillary Clinton apologized and expressed regret for popularizing the idea of the super predator. But her words still resonate with me in a way that she didn't mean them to. She said, we must bring them to heal the way we would a disobedient dog. 
But all that separates that sentence from a true path toward the safety and success of our teenagers, both those deemed as dangerous and those deemed as not, is a single letter, a sentiment I hope we can all, no matter where we fall in the debate, agree with. We have to focus on the needs of our teenagers, on the needs of all our teenagers. It's time to stop criminalizing our kids. And instead, I think we must bring them to heal. This was American Hysteria. Next time on the show, for our Aftershock episode coming next week, I will cover violent video games as promised. And after that, we're covering a really interesting topic called pornography. I know all you deviants out there are interested in that. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Assistant produced by Derek Smith. Produced and edited by Clear Commo Studios, with research assisted by Riley Smith. And recorded on location at Densmore Studios in Seattle. And a special thanks this week to Miranda Zickler for all of her help on this episode and for trying to keep me grounded as I pace around my bedroom, actually almost pulling out my hair. I hope you all have a great week and make sure you follow us on social media, leave us a review, you know the drill. I really appreciate you guys trusting me with topics like this and thanks as always for reaching out and always feel free to send me a message. I'm doing my best out here, but I know I'm as imperfect as everyone else. I hope you all have a great week, and just like always, there's a lot going on out there. So please take care of your hearts. Thanks so much. We must all do more to recognize, recognize, recognize. We must all do more to recognize the kinds of kids that are called super, super, super and look for the early warning signals. The kinds of kids that are called super predators. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. Bring them to heal. We have to bring them to heal. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first... Surely more of them can be saved. No conscience, no empathy, no conscience, no empathy. We need to take these Surely people more on. Of them can be saved. We Surely need to take these people on. Saved. No empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring to them to heal. We have to bring them to heal. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. We have to bring them to heal. We must all do more to Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. 
Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.